Our scripture today is Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So uh, last fall, Julie and I were driving back from Pittsburgh to D.C. We punched in our home address into the GPS and began the trip back. Knowing, knowing it would be a four and a half hour drive, we had planned a call with one of our friends from Canada to take up some of the time. It was a beautiful drive full of fall colors, traffic was great, it was a wonderful drive. And about the point that you're supposed to switch interstates, we didn't notice that our GPS screen had frozen and we missed the turnoff. And because we were talking, we were distracted and we just kept driving. And about an hour past that interchange, we realized our screen was frozen and was like, ah, where are we? We pulled off at the next exit to figure out where we are. Turns out we are in Sutton, West Virginia. <laughs> Anyone know where Sutton have been there? Yeah, exactly, right? So way off course. Uh, we were an hour driving in the wrong direction. In fact, Sutton is like closer to the Ohio border than the Virginia border. And when we punched in our address, it was another four and a half hours to get home. In that moment, Julie and I just simultaneously experienced incredulousness, shame, and deflation. <laughs> and all we could uh, do is laugh and shake our heads. And our small group was kind enough to commiserate on our long detour with Ju Julia giving us play-by-play -play, uh, updates from the passenger seat. Here's the thing. It wasn't just that we had made a mistake and headed in the wrong direction. It was the thought that we had, we, it was the assumption that we were still going in the right direction. It never crossed our minds otherwise until we actually noticed that the GPS screen was frozen for over an hour. Our misguided drive is kind of like what our lives are like when lived apart from God. We can believe all is going well, we can enjoy the journey, but ultimately it takes us in the wrong direction of where we need to go. In this big picture living uh, message series from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we are looking at how God's big picture of uniting all things in creation, in heaven and earth, th through God's Son, Jesus. Today, we're going to look at how a life joined to Jesus orients our uh, lives towards fullness, towards completion, towards wholeness, calling us from a life 
leading towards death. Through God's gracious intervention that we've been singing about this morning, we are made alive in Christ. So what does it look like to live with this big picture life defined by God's grace? So we're going to look at the before, the after, and the defined by grace. The before, the after, and defined by grace. So chapter 2 begins with chapter 2, verse 1. But it's an unfortunate chapter division. There is a good reason to consider two, the, what we just read to be continuous uh, section from the previous section of chapter 1, verse 15 to 23 that we preached on last week. It's here that in that section, if you recall, uh, that God, Paul describes the power of God revealed in the resurrection of Jesus and what that does for us. That resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead is now available to all who would trust in Jesus. That resurrection power, again, in Paul's mind, isn't power to get other people to do things that you want. It's not power to accomplish an agenda in the world. It's Christ's resurrection power is power to become God's people. It is power to move towards greater union with God, which is ultimately what all humans are created for. Of what life is like when we live it apart from God and apart from Christ's resurrection power. It's the reality of sin and how it affects our lives. So in the first few verses of chapter 2, Paul describes this life lived apart from God. He says, you were once dead in your transgressions and sins. And when we're once dead, we are living according to three forces. Uh, the ways of the world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, and satisfying our whims and desires. Three forces that are at work that lead us down this path away from God. In Christian tradition, these have kind of been referred to in the shorthand as the world, the devil, and the flesh. These, these forces act against us and draw us away from life with God and that ultimately draw us away from our fullest humanity that we have been created for. This is the before. Before being joined to life with God in Christ. By living under the influence of these forces, we are literally the walking dead. The term, you were once dead in your transgressions and sins, is a Jewish way of speech to describe the kind of life when it is headed in the wrong direction, away from life with God. It's the ultimate destination of separation from the source of all things that are good and beautiful and uh, life and love. And though we may be alive physically and emotionally and in relationship with others, our ultimate end trajectory is death. Paul refers to this first force as the ways of this world. And more literally, the Greek word is the age of this world. This Greek word age or ways is aeon, A-E-O-N. It's the word that, where we get the English word eon, you know, eons in ages. For Paul's original audience, when they heard this word, they would have made two associations. One was, for Greeks, aeon was a personal deity of power to invoke for your benefit. Secondly, it refer, the ways of this world refers to just what's going on around us, the currents of the world that carry us around us the ways of moving about that run against God's good intentions for 
us and for humanity. This, is the, this way of the world seeks independence from God. This way of the world seeks to do what seems right, what seems good, especially because others are doing those things and they say it's good, but it's actually leading us away from God's best for us. In our day and age, this way could be the me first, take care of yourself, do what you think is best for yourself. That attitude that undergirds many of our pursuits and decisions in our life. But often the ways of the world are contrary to the way of Jesus. A second force that is at work that leads us down this path of death is the ruler of the kingdom of the air. It's a term used to describe not just Satan and the demonic realm, but it describes a spirit that is now at work in all who are running away from God. So when they say the spirits of the air, what is that? In, in, our, in our teaching time today, we had a chance to talk about the trajectory of living in righteousness and unrighteousness and where things lead us. It's, it's this, uh, and we talked about the air and the heavens. The air is this place where uh, uh, was seen in, 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 the, in the ancient mind was the place, the lower heavens between earth, where we live in our material world, and the heavens where God dwells. So it was this playground for the spiritual realm that we, are, we can be influenced by. The, it's this air that uh, for all who have embraced Satan's deadly ideas and schemes that deface God's intent for a beautiful creation, especially for God's, the humanity who are intended to be God's image bearers. Now, for us today, we can think of it as the air that we breathe. It's the water that we're swimming in. It's, the, it's this playground for evil spiritual beings that tell us something is good when, we're, when it might not be ultimately good. For us today, it's this air that we breathe. You see, Satan isn't just a cartoon figure with hellish looks. Satan can also be a spirit at work amongst people who see no need to live any differently or seek independence from God. And we can all be subject to Satan's influence where we are led away from faithful image-bearing of God or cause others to be less like God. It's why Jesus says to his disciple Peter, he says, get behind me, Satan. He says that to Peter's face. Jesus wasn't really calling Peter Satan, but Peter was conveying the spirit of Satan in his rebuke of Jesus for predicting his death. He's saying, no, no, you don't have to do this, Jesus. No, no, that, that's not what's deserving for you. Is that well intended? Yeah. Is that good? He wants Jesus to stay alive? Yeah. But it was ultimately against the will of God. Peter, despite his good intentions, was acting as an enemy of God in that moment. Hence why Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. A third force that drives us away from union with God is our own desire and craving. To be human is to desire. The question is, what do we do with those desires? Now, we will often rationalize to ourselves like this, something like this. I have this desire. God made me. So God gave me these desires. Therefore, they can and should be followed. That's how we often think. 
but that reflects a faulty logic. Because if you're honest with yourself, we all experience deep desires, which, unless they're held in check, lead to disaster. Maybe not ultimate disaster in the moment, but they lead us away from being faithful image bearers of God, or they lead us from treating others as image bearers of God. They seem good at the time, but they lead us to be less human and less faithful image bearers of God. Jesus not only revealed God's character to us, and what, but he revealed what it looks like to live as a fully human being in perfect union with God. This, turn, this kind of life actually turns out to be much more self-sacrificial than we'd like to admit. Jesus reveals that the fullest life is not indulging desire, but it's following God, trusting God, laying down our lives before God. So I've been talking all these things that seem kind of heavy, right? It's the ways of the world, the, the spirit of the air, and the, and the flesh. A life lived under these forces, the world, the devil, and the flesh, lead us away from God and towards, ultimately, death. Paul describes the end result of this trajectory as the wrath of God, where we become less human, where we become less faithful image bearers of God. And you might say, well, aren't all God's children, all humans God's children? So why would God, we also be children of wrath? So yes, we are all God's children generally because we're all created beings. But not all benefit from belonging to God's family through faithful, humble trust in God. You see, by rejecting God's leadership in our lives, by rejecting belonging to God's family through humble trust and obedience to Jesus, we actually are choosing to be children of wrath. God honors our choice to live independently from God. And that's the problem that we all struggle with. There exists in us the settled habitual behavior of the whole human race that leads us away from God and towards death, which is the ultimate destruction of our humanity. That's what death is. We no longer are human. The problem here isn't just that our bodies and our minds are corrupted by sin. The problem is that we are already dead. We are, that, that, locate, that trajectory is already fixed. That GPS coordinate is already fixed. We are already heading down the wrong road. We can't turn around. We're unable to turn around. Our brakes don't work. Our GPS is locked in to the wrong destination. So what's the hope? The answer is that God provides a way. He provides a way through death and out to a new kind of life completely. This new life is achieved through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the King. That's the before, apart from God's intervention. Now we get to the after. In the after, no longer are our lives shadowed by death or the fear of death or the fear of ending up there. Our wheels are no longer stuck in these ruts that lead us there. In the after, our lives are colored with life and light and love, shining from the age to come into our lives now, where Jesus has already gone on ahead of us. 
having already passed through death, what we would have experienced without succumbing to its eternal effects. Take a look at chapter 2, what Paul highlights this afterlife, after, not afterlife, but after for us, saying what we have been made. Verse 5, we have been made alive in Christ. Verse 6, God raised us up with Christ and God seated us with him in the heavenlies. Verse 8, for it is grace, by grace you have been saved. Verse 10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Note the tense. They are active past tense verbs. We are not active agents to secure this new life. There's nothing that we can do to get it. God is the active agent. God is the subject. God makes us, God raises us up. God seats us up with Jesus in the heavenly realms. God saves us. God creates us in Christ Jesus to do good works. We are merely beneficiaries of God's action. We cannot attain it by ourselves. We cannot do it by sheer determination. We, cannot, we do not attain it by enlightenment. God is the only active agent to make this new life possible for the walking dead. The verbs are also past tense. For those who have been joined to Jesus, this kind of life has already been secured and is now available to all who would receive and trust Jesus. Because Jesus has already passed again through death and into this new kind of life. After we have been made alive in Christ, we live with this end goal of resurrection, the end goal of renewal of all things in mind. That is the GPS coordinates that have been locked in for us. Well, you might be asking, well, wait a second. Andrew, you've been talking about after, but after exactly what? Is it after Jesus' Jesus's resurrection 2,000 years ago? Or is it after I believe and put my trust in Jesus at some point in my life? Or is this after I die? Or is this after Jesus comes back to renew all things in heaven and earth? Which after am I actually talking about? The answer to that question is yes. <laughs> yes to all of those things because they are all simultaneously true. We just do not experience the fullness of all those things at different points. We can live in the after now because Jesus has already been raised from the grave. And he's already seated in the heavenly realms. And because God sees his son Jesus in that place, when we put our trust in Jesus, God sees that for us as well. For those who have been joined to Jesus, we are beneficiaries of what Jesus has accomplished. So we speak of that future reality, of what Jesus is enjoying now, because it's the most, the, the most important event of the resurrection of Jesus has already happened in the past. We will have a place to play in this age to come, in stewarding and ruling over the new creation with Jesus. That's the destiny for those who have been joined to Jesus. People who belong to Jesus are described by Paul as being in him, in Christ. This means that what is true of Jesus is true of everyone who trusts in Jesus now. In Christ's life, death, and resurrection, 
the break between the past and the present has already occurred. The break has already happened. This doesn't mean that we don't struggle against these forces in our lives. It doesn't mean we don't struggle against the ways of this world or figuring those things out or, the, or that Satan will never attack us or that we will never struggle with our desires. Because our inclination to move away from God is a constant thing in our lives until we are in Jesus' presence. But that, the effect of Christ's life, death, and resurrection are decisively effective for all who trust in him. The end destination of death and destruction is no longer the fixed destination for those who have been joined to God in Jesus. The GPS coordinates have been recalibrated towards life and love and light and union with God. All we have to do is receive it and follow and begin practicing this way of Jesus in being with God. This is what new life in Christ is. To live in the after now. Now here's the thing. There's a fine line. It's a fine but significant line between the before and the after. We find it in verse 4. Verse 4 is the meat of this before-after sandwich. Though God will deal decisively with the effects of sin described here as wrath, Wrath is not what defines God's character. His mercy and love do. What does verse 4 and 5 say? But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. It is by grace that you have been saved. He says that three times. Verse 5, verse 7, verse 8. And Ty just handed this to me. What do you call this? This is a word cloud. It's a word cloud of this passage. And the most repeated, you probably can't see this from where you're at. I can barely see it from here. But uh, you'll see the biggest words are the repeated words. God, Christ, us, grace. God, Christ, us, grace. If you just were to circle all those things, this is what Paul is trying to get at. We see grace mentioned explicitly in verses 5, 7, and 8. But its synonyms are peppered throughout. The great love of God in verse 4. Rich in mercy, verse 4. Kindness, verse 7. The gift of God, verse 8. Grace upon grace upon grace. Our, our lives defined by this kind of grace. The idea of grace is a very odd one when it's disconnected from the Christian story. You see, in our contemporary world, we use the word grace to describe maybe someone's poise, right? Oh, he or she is a person of grace. Or grace might be those few words of appreciation we say before we eat some food. Or it's just simply someone's name, like Elizabeth Grace. But grace in the Christian story is much more significant than these things. You see, comparing them to two other things, if judgment... Judgment is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. See, when we follow the world, the flesh, and the devil, when we, when we let these forces do their thing to us, what we deserve is death. What we deserve is separation, is, is ultimate anti-humanness, which is what we've chosen. 
That's judgment. It's an appropriate judgment. We are simply getting what we choose. A life lived permanently apart from God. We can no longer be faithful image bearers. But what's mercy? Mercy is not getting that consequence for our actions. But the living God of Scripture isn't characterized by judgment, isn't characterized by not even mercy. The God of Scripture is characterized by grace. God gives us what we do not deserve, which is despite our inclinations to run away from God and choose the way of death, God still gives us life. God changes our life trajectory. God joins us with the divine life of the Trinity through Jesus. When we recognize God's grace in gifting us this new life in Christ, it inoculates us, it immunizes us from sin and its trajectory, which is death. So we can carry ourselves in the world with this characteristic, this bold confidence, yet humble, yet sincere humility. You can be boldly confident, yet sincerely humble at the same time. We're boldly confident because we live in the after now, not in the before. We live in bold confidence because we know the end of the story and we have the power because it's been given to us in Jesus to live it out. It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And we carry ourselves with sincere humility. That boldness doesn't turn us in, turn into pride because we know that we do not get that because of us. It's simply a gift of God. It's the grace of God. It's the generosity of God towards us. We don't deserve this. We simply respond in gratitude and receive what God has given to us. The Last of Us is a video game turned into a TV series following this unlikely friendship between Joel, a rugged and loner veteran, and Ellie, this teenager who carries a special power. It's like many, you know, Americans love these post-apocalyptic movies, right? It's set in apocalypse where an infection has taken over the world and zombies are everywhere, and uh, that's basically what you'll become. But Ellie was born with an inoculation against this infection because her mother was bitten and died while Ellie was in her womb. Ellie did nothing to become immune. She simply received it simply by being her mom's child. As the story unfolds, we find that Ellie actually has been bitten by a zombie. She bears the marks of one who has been bitten, but she does not succumb to the effects of that disease. She learns to walk through the world, this threatening world, with confidence, whose end only seems to be death by zombie attack. And though it can be scary, and there are many unknowns, her immunity gives her a boldness to know that this disease cannot ultimately harm her. She makes her way through the world secure, knowing that her trajectory is not succumbing to the disease. That's kind of what life is like when we live in the after with Jesus. When we are joined to Jesus, his future becomes our future. His past becomes our present. And when we trust his story, we are inoculated from where our story would otherwise lead if we were to succumb to the forces of the world, the devil, and the flesh. Thanks be to God. In Christ, we have been made alive. 
in Christ we have been raised with him in the heavenly realms and seated with him in the heavenlies and we have been created for good works the question is will we receive this gift of God's grace and whether we will live our lives defined by this grace my prayer my hope is that your answer might be yes it's by his grace and in his grace that we live this new life that God has created us for. May we do so humbly and confidently. Amen.